This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. I'm Helen Farmer. Fantastic to have you with us on the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. We are marking National Fertility Day with Cassie Destino from IVF Support UAE, talking about some of the common misconceptions around assisted fertility and hearing from mum Kate about her journey to become a mother. We're also discussing entrepreneurship in teens. 17-year-old Manal has started not one, not two, but three businesses. What are her motivations? Dr. Sergio De Silva was on hand to answer all of your pet questions. And we were joined by Dr. Amar from Moorfield Eye Hospital, discussing the link between diabetes and eye health. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. With King's College Hospital London in Dubai, bringing the best of British healthcare to the UAE. Hope you're having a fantastic afternoon so far. We on the show today are marking World Fertility Day. Despite what we're told as teenagers, getting pregnant doesn't always happen very easily. Impaired fertility, whether it is struggling to conceive or pregnancy losses, is estimated to affect one in seven couples. If you have been affected or indeed you want to share any insights or questions, please don't hesitate to get in touch. We're joined live on the line now by Cassie Destino from IVF Support UAE. Cassie, how are you? Hi, Helen. I'm great. Thank you. Good, good. Well, thank you for being with us today. You provide an incredible service and support to so many, I wouldn't say women, but it's not just women. It's it's couples, it's families across the UAE in terms of guiding them through the IVS process from choosing a doctor, which we're going to touch on, to in, interpreting results and being there for practical and emotional support as well. But you obviously have a personal connection to infertility and I wouldn't would love it if you wouldn't mind sharing what you went through as a family. Absolutely. Um, my husband and I started trying to have a baby uh, a few years after we got married, and it wasn't going well, and it was taking longer than we thought. And we started with some investigations and pretty quickly realized we were going to need fertility treatment. Uh, so this was back in San Francisco, where we used to live, and we started with uh, a few of the kind of entry-level fertility treatments, some um, medications to induce ovulation. Uh, those didn't work. We moved on to something called an IUI or an intrauterine insemination. Mm-hmm. Did four of those. Those didn't work. And then so we finally moved on to the gold standard IVF uh, in San Francisco. That did work. We were pregnant. Unfortunately, we did lose that baby at 12 weeks. And then uh, about two weeks after that, we moved to the UAE and did two more IVFs. And then that third IVF resulted in our twins who are about to be seven years old. I love to hear that it, it wasn't in vain, that heartache and my goodness, the costs involved, because I feel like that's, yeah. that's a very real obstacle for an awful lot of couples. Um, I wanted to ask you about... The practical side, really, how long should you try for before seeking extra extra support? What do the doctors that you work with tend to advise? Well, the general rule of thumb is that if you are under the age of 35 and you are not pregnant within a year of trying, that you should seek counsel. Mm -hmm. And if you are over 35, then that number drops to six months. But if you know that you have an issue, if you have irregular periods or you know you have a condition like endometriosis, then you don't wait that long. You move on. I I always say if there's any little 
feeling that you have that you might have trouble, just go have a workup done. Mm-hmm. I always say it's better to go earlier than later to find out if, if you need some assistance. Cassie, can I ask you about some of the common myths or misconceptions that you've heard or perhaps you held yourself about infertility mm-hmm. over the years? You know, I think one of the main ones is that people seem to think that an IVF is a guarantee. That if you've, if you've not been able to conceive on your own, then you'll just have an IVF and then you'll have a baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think people get really surprised when they, when they start doing IVF and they realize that it's absolutely not a guarantee. Or, you know, what I often hear is that people will, will start fertility treatment thinking that one specific thing is wrong and then, you know, for example, they have a low egg count and then they start their fertility treatment and they realize that there's actually also something else going on that wasn't picked up until they were really into treatment. So maybe in addition to having uh, a low egg count, they're, they're actually also poor quality eggs and there was just no way of knowing that mm-hmm. until you got into the fertility treatment cycle. I think the decision to to take IVF is is one that's obviously incredibly personal to, to different people for different reasons and coming in from all sorts of different lenses, you know, f- financial, time, age, culture, all sorts. Um, how how do you kind of advise people when it comes to pursuing that journey? What how do you work with them, Cassie? Well, so I work as a fertility doula, so I work one-on-one with people who are navigating this decision. And, and you know, one of the things that I really stress is that it's so important to have really clear and open communication with your partner since it's a journey you're going on together mm-hmm. and to understand what your limits are. You know, what can you afford? How many times can we do this before we begin? So that you know, this is what my boundary is. This is what I can afford to do. And of course, you can change your mind as you go. But being really clear with each other of what you're willing to go through before you begin is so important. And being really realistic about what your chances are as Mm -hmm. you start speaking to doctors and start understanding your own medical condition you know, people have different rates of success for different reasons. Yeah, I find this really confusing because it's a very crowded space, the fertility clinic world here in the UAE. And that means, you know, it's quite a lot doing advertising campaigns. And there seems to be a lot of claims about success rates. And I wondered if you were able to shed some light on what we really need to know when you're when you're starting to weigh up the clinic that's right for you. What do those success rates actually mean? Well, it's hard to say because we don't know for sure always what those success rates are pointing to. Mm. What they should be pointing to is a live birth. Um, So it's important to be clear if your clinic is claiming a success rate to find out what they mean by that. Mm. How do they define that? Generally speaking, the NHS says that for women under 35, uh, you've got about a 32% success rate. For women over 38, that number dips down to 19%. But what's really important to know is that every woman is different and everyone's going to have a different success rate based on their own particular set of circumstances. 
And it doesn't matter what the NHS says. <laughs> if you, oh, yeah. once you have a conversation with your doctor about your body and your circumstances. This must be a, a common frustration that comes up in your community about, you know, this worked for her. Why hasn't it worked for me? Or yeah. they said this doctor was the best and we're not finding that. It, you know, it's such a personal path. And that comparison piece is, is completely inevitable when people are desperate and full of hope and full of frustration and, and, and wanting something so, so badly. Um, we had a message here actually from, um, from Ali saying, please can you outline the costs involved? Good question. Um, because yeah. does that vary as well, Cassie? Is there a kind of a, a range as such that you know, couples need to be aware of and prepared for? There absolutely is. <laughs> there's, a, there's a wide range and it depends again on what kind of services you need and what kind of testing you need and what kind of medication you need. Um, all of the clinics have a, you know, will offer various uh, deals and discounts throughout the year for different reasons. There's often things, uh, there's often discounts during Ramadan or <laughs> really? the Awareness Month. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, so I did not realize. Yeah. And, um, and it depends, you know, you, you, you get what you pay for. There are there are certain extra tests. There's certain extra monitoring. So it's you know there's it's really hard to say IVF costs X number of dirham because we just it just depends on what you need. You know IVF is not a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you give, could you give Ali a bit of a benchmark? Are we talking, I don't know, how many zeros are we talking per round? I mean, I would say that, oh gosh, I, I, I would say that all in without genetic testing, uh, which is another whole thing, that you're expecting to pay between twenty five and 30000 and you know, please don't. <laughs> no, Cassie, <laughs> Cassie said it was in. No, no, no. Of course not. But I think I think that is really important for an awful lot of couples to understand the financial outlay involved. I, and, I really, and you really and you can ask. You know, when you start, there are whole you know departments in these IVF clinics that will talk to you about the costs involved. So that's another thing. Mm-hmm. Get clear on that mm-hmm. before you begin. What are you expected to pay? When are you expected to pay it? Um, that's another part that, you know, there could be a little bit due at this time and some due on the day of egg collection. Are you paying if you end up not having any embryos to transfer? You know, there will be dedicated people to walk you through that part of your process. And lastly, um, your community is absolutely incredible. It's a private group, um, but you also do lots of in-person events and introducing people to, to doctors and, and trying to make, make that connection. Um, but do you have any general advice on finding a reputable fertility clinic? What are some of the questions people should be asking? Well, one thing to be clear about is that if they are operating in the UAE, they are reputable. This is a competitive market. We want the best of the best in all things here in Dubai. Fertility treatment is no exception. So if you have a doctor working here, it's because they are good and they are good at what they do. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to like every single one of them, but they are good. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. You can be assured that any doctor you meet here is is a good doctor. Um, I recommend that you go meet several of them. As a member of IVF Support UAE, you are entitled to free uh, consultations with almost all the clinics here. It is important to be sure 
they understand you. You understand them. Mm-hmm. You you like them. You like their what yeah, they're cause, saying. Yeah, because I mean, my goodness, you 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 know putting yourself in such a vulnerable position there. You know, as I said, one of just hope and faith and help me. That if you're not yeah. able to have honest conversations with someone that you actually want to spend time with, then that disconnect is not going to and help the process in terms of stress. Absolutely. And it's also important to remember that you are a, you're not a patient, you are a patient, but you're also a customer. Mm-hmm. You're spending a lot of money here. Mm-hmm. So you get to have your questions answered. Cassie, and thank they you need so, to be so, yeah. so much for that. Um, really do appreciate it. As I said, it is a Facebook group. You have your website as well. And if anyone does want the details of that, I'd be very happy to share it on 4001. But Cassie, for anyone who wants to head over there now, if they've got their phone in their hand, can you share your contact details for getting in touch? Yes, you can find us. Uh, Facebook is actually the best way, IVF Support UAE, closed private group. We also have a website, ivfsupportuae.com, and you can contact me there directly. Thank you, Cassie. Really do appreciate it. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. With King's College Hospital London in Dubai, bringing the best of British healthcare to the UAE. Great to have you with us on this Wednesday afternoon. We are marking uh, World Fertility Day. And joining us now is Kate. She's a mum who's been through an awful lot to be able to say that. And Kate, thank you so much for joining us. I really do appreciate um, anyone who is open and brave enough and vulnerable enough to share their stories because we hear so much about the data. You know, one in seven couples will struggle with infertility. But I think the most important thing is really understanding or getting the human story behind those numbers because I think a lot of people whether they realise it or not will have someone in their life that has been struggling and suffering so thank you Um, Kate can you explain a little bit about what you and your husband have been through over the years yeah sure and thanks so much for um, having me on and and um, you know, for giving a platform for um, this, I think it's so, you know, obviously so important and, and I'm happy to, to share my story and my journey if it helps to educate and, and support other people who are going through it. Mm-hmm. Um, I never thought I was going to be the, one of the one in seven. Uh, you know, I, I, had, I had no idea that that was going to be my plan or, or my journey. Um, we got married in 20, oh, 2009 <laughs> and um we moved to Dubai quite soon after that and having kind of children and starting a family was never kind of the first priority um, to us. Um, we kind of wanted to, to get to know each other as a married couple, start this new life in Dubai, uh, set up our careers, everything like that. And it kind of just came upon us that we both at the same time uh, decided, yeah, you know, let's, let's, let's crack on. think about having a family. It's something <laughs> mm-hmm. that we, that's what we, we want to do now. And, um, and was it something that you took for granted that this was just going um, to be something that, that you did? I, I, I think, it was, you know, I'm, we're both from big families. You know, we're both, you know, my sister has kids, my cousins have kids. You know, it was never something that I thought was going to be an issue for, for either of us. Um, and... It just wasn't happening. Um, you know, it um, it didn't happen. It didn't. You know, you kind of. I just thought. You know, you, you hear all these stories. You know, people who um, just fall pregnant, or you know, they get pregnant accidentally, or they you know have no, no problems in conceiving. And, and no one in my family ever had any issues. And I didn't have any friends who had told me they had had issues. So it wasn't something that I even considered was going to be um, something that I would have to, to deal with. And it just wasn't happening for us. Um, and so, uh, you know, age probably was a factor. We were, you know, we were um, in our 
mid to, to late 30s um, and so we went to, to see a doctor you know um, to start kind of doing some tests investigating you know as to why it wasn't happening um, and one of the first tests they do is your your AMH which tells you your basically your ovarian reserve something I had never even heard of didn't know it, it was a thing um, and it came back that I had a reduced or a diminished or a low um, ovarian reserve um, which basically meant that I had a low egg reserve um, and the lower your egg reserve is the um, the, the, the least um, quality eggs you're producing because obviously the lesser you have the quality isn't as good and so that was something that was flagged but it wasn't flagged as a major issue um, so we didn't you know it, IVF wasn't suggested straight off the bat um, we did some rounds of just um, um, having um, stimulation as such for and tracking uh, my cycle and tracking ovulation um, and then having you know some um, protocol for the um, you know for um, promoting egg growth and then after that year it became kind of quite evident that we needed to to move to speak to an actual fertility clinic so we have been doing these all through kind of um, uh, through doctors family doctors gynecologists mm-hmm. um, and then we were referred to a actual fertility clinic um, and when we came to them their advice was yes you know straight away um, we would advise you to go down after you, you know you've gone down this path so far that uh, we would advise the the IVF as your next uh, option. We ended up doing pretty much back-to-back um, wow. IVF treatments from February 2016 through to 2019. Oh, and so, you know, back-to-back, oh, yeah. In total, we ended up having nine rounds of IVF, three different clinics in Dubai. We did a clinic at home in Ireland. We did a clinic in London. Um, and we did a clinic in Prague. And there was no definitive defined reason as to why we weren't conceiving um yes i had a low amh but i was still ovulating i was still producing eggs we were still having fertilized embryos what kind of kept you going because i've got friends who are going through ivf right now and it's you know one more roll of the dice i've just got a bonus we're going to spend it on on ivf you know the next one's going to be the one that that sense it's, of hope. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. It's you know, it, it's almost. I don't say it's like you know, it is like a roll of the dice. It's it's, it's not like a, an addiction, but you're like maybe the next one is going to be it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's you know, when do you call it a day? That's a very hard decision to make. Um, and obviously, there comes a time in everyone's journey, whether financially, because obviously, um, this is in no way a a you know a cheap route or a cheap option. Um, you know, IVF is very expensive. Um, it's um, emotionally draining, it's physically draining. Um, and so there does come a point where, you know, kind of unfortunately your head has to rule your heart and you have to make some hard decisions as to when that, but if that's going to be different for every um, couple. Um, we got to our kind of our point where we got to um, our ninth round um, and it was, you know, we were having that discussion of should we start looking at alternative options? Should we be looking at surrogacy? Should we be looking at adoption? Should we be looking at egg donation? You know, and so these were, you know, even from the clinic, these were starting to um, be kind of put in front of us. You know, maybe you should start considering looking at, at other options. And, and, and which is what we actually ended up doing was that our final IVF um, was a egg donor IVF. Um, 
and that was the one that worked um uh, you know that was obviously as well having to get our heads around going down the route of um egg donation um and that was you know that was the the cycle that worked for us we fell pregnant first time um on a egg donation cycle um that was the one we did in prague and that was our our ninth round um and that was when we had made the decision kind of this was we were going to try this and if if this didn't work then we were going to have to kind of take a, a sit down and, and see how were we going to become a family and if it was going to be on you know um what was our family going to look like and and or was it just us or you know so there was some difficult conversations that were going to have to be had but we had decided that we were going to try egg donation and that worked for us and that was our ninth IVF and that was in um October of 2019 um and we fell pregnant with twins. Um, unfortunately, um, I had a very complicated pregnancy. So not only was getting pregnant a, a journey, I had a very complicated pregnancy. We lost um, one of our twins. Um, but our silver lining was we did deliver a healthy um, baby boy in June of 2020. Um, he's now two, nearly two and a half. Um, so I think beautiful little boy. So we eventually got to to what we were trying to achieve out of this journey um but it was a long long road uh financially emotionally physically draining um and you know not just on on me as i was obviously going through the um the actual procedures but uh you know me and my husband our relationship you know everything um it's 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 a difficult road it is a difficult journey and you have to have difficult conversations uh, the whole way um because and you have to try and be on the same page because um, one of you might want to keep going. One of you might not want to see that person going through what they have to go through. You know the heartache of of each cycle that fails. Um, and so, yeah, we had a, a long a long journey. You know, um, and the reason we moved around from I suppose clinic to clinic, country to country, was because it was unexplained. We were kind of well, maybe yeah. they'll do something different, or they'll have a different approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we had long protocols. We had short protocols. We had you know. I took a sabbatical for work thinking maybe it's stress or I'll be stressed for like four months and I won't work and maybe that's it, you know. Um, you know, we did immunology tests, um, you know, to see if was anything in my immunity that was fighting off me getting pregnant, you know. Um, you kind of, you know, you name it, I've probably done it. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, it was, yeah, it was heartbreaking because every cycle was a loss. Uh, you know, there were cycles where you went through, you know, weeks and weeks of this protocol and you go through the scan to see, you know, how many eggs you have. And I didn't respond. Um, and you think, you know, what have I been doing? How could I not even respond? You know, I've been doing all the drugs you told me to do. I've been doing all the daily injections. I've been, you know, standing on my head as you told me to. Um, you know, and, and you just, um, yeah, every cycle was so was hard because every cycle was a loss, um, no matter I, what point you get to. I think that at that point, actually, and we, we did mark baby loss awareness just quite recently, but I think your point there about every every attempt being a loss, you know, every promise of a pregnancy yeah. is you know, you're still grieving that yeah. hope you know that possibility that dream um in a way and i'm so so sorry that you that you lost a little baby there um and i'm so thrilled for you that you've got a very bouncing beautiful baby boy <laughs> and what a gorgeous character he is um 
thank you, Kate, for sharing that. I think it's so, so valuable for other people to have a bit of an understanding of, uh, yes, the emotional, yes, you know, the financial, but that determination that you had and I wondered if you had any advice and as I said I think an awful lot of people know an awful lot of people going through this right now how can friends support you know how how can families be there for a couple that's going through this yeah I think that's you know that's quite important at the very beginning kind of you know if I think back to you know 2015 seems like a long time ago and you know and it's still you know, yes, we've moved on in terms of conversations around this, um, and I suppose the taboo around it isn't as as evident, but it's still a hard subject for people to talk about. It's still a hard subject for people to understand, to not know, you know, what's the right thing to say, the wrong thing to say. Um, and at the beginning, we weren't open about it. We kind of kept it to ourselves and you know not for any particular reason of you know it was just something we were going through and people didn't really talk about it and you know it's not something you bring up over dinner um and so we kept it to ourselves but as it as our journey went down on um we struggled with only relying on each other to Mm -hmm. to vent to and to talk to about um and and we needed to to widen our circle to be able to um help each other and and get support from outside of just each other because it's so emotional um i you know going through it just the two of you is quite hard um so we opened uh, started opening up to family and friends about what we were going through um and it is an educational process they you know people who haven't been through it don't know the ins and outs of it and so you do kind of have to educate people as you're going along through it yourself yeah, because you, beca- you become a real medical expert you know yeah, if you understand yeah. what all of those exactly. tests and um, numbers and potential outcomes and oh, protocols yeah. mean Kate, thank you so much for being with us today thanks so much Ellen. and again thank you um you know for giving a, a platform to these types of discussions um it really helps so many people Thanks for all of the wonderful messages we received um, in support of Kate and her family. The anonymous message here saying, as someone who's been through rounds of IVF, I've got a couple of comments. I think it's vital to raise awareness of how quickly most women's fertility decreases after the age of 35. Obviously, everyone's different, but that means the chances of IVF success also decreases dramatically with age. We need to be open and upfront about this and start talking about egg freezing to improve success rates later in life. People put off starting a family for various reasons. Second, people who haven't been through it generally underestimate the emotional trauma and self-doubt that goes hand in hand with IVF. As a woman, my confidence was at rock bottom because, as I saw it, my body couldn't do what it was designed to do. So it's really not helpful when people, albeit well-meaning, tell you that they know X and Y who just fell pregnant once they stopped worrying about it, etc. Thankfully, we were blessed and had success eventually, but it took a long time for us as a couple to recover from that process. Thank you so much for that. And a message here saying, I always recommend people looking to complementary medicine alongside fertility treatment. I did some research, had Chinese cupping at the Dubai Herbal Treatment Centre and also acupuncture in my last attempt to conceive and it worked. The Chinese cupping increases circulation to the womb. Um, so do get in touch, as I said, Cassie there on the IVF support group. A lot of people sharing what has worked for them. Um, and we also had a message from Zahir. We've had six attempts at IVF and then finally the seventh one was successful. Uh, it, took, it took a lot of uh, effort and had a great deal of emotion emotional toll on my wife. But then at the end of the day, uh, we did have a, a, a healthy child born in our seventh attempt. We we're expecting our second child to be born uh, soon, but there is hope. And uh, even if you're 40 plus, 
and can still be successful with their attempts. Thank you, Zahir, and congratulations to the family on the new edition, sir. Home or away. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We love connecting you with some of the best um, in the business, some of the most in-demand doctors. And today, we're shining a bit of a spotlight on your eyesight. Dr. Amar Safa, Medical Director and Consultant Ophthalmologist at Moorfields, joining us live as we take a special look at the link between diabetes and eye health. Dr. Amar, how are you this afternoon? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you with us. I know you're incredibly busy, so I do value your time. And this is a topic that I feel like is one, it's a bit of an obvious one, because so many people have diabetes in this region, but unfortunately the link between diabetes and eyesight isn't really understood um, by even sufferers so I'd love it and I know you are obviously an expert in this area to break it down for us in non-doctorly terms how and why diabetes affects the eyes because it seems unexpected to me. That's a very good question, Helen, actually. And thank you so much for asking this question because, as you said, a lot of people do not really make that connection. They, they know that they're diabetics, but they go like, why do I need to check my eyes? Um, let, me, let me explain it a little bit in a non-doctorly uh, manner, as you said. <laughs> so basically, diabetes means high sugar in the blood, and our body is unable to uh, control the sugar in the blood. Now, that affects the blood vessels all over our body. Now, the eye itself, and particularly the retina in the eye, is very, very rich with blood vessels. And this is what makes it vulnerable to the effect of uncontrolled diabetes. So somebody who has diabetes but controlled is okay. But Mm -hmm. somebody who has diabetes with uh, poor control, which means their blood sugar is high all the time, this is what uh, affects the eye by affecting the blood vessels in the eye, making it leaky, making it unable to contain the blood within it. So that's why, that's why it's affected. That's number one. The other one is, is the effect on what we call the lens in the eye, creating something we call cataract. Mm-hmm. So what is a cataract? It's basically clouding of the lens of the eye. Um, so that, that's why sometimes patients who have diabetes or high sugar will tell you, I have cloudy vision. I can't really focus well, even with my glasses. That's mainly because of the, the uh, changes that happen in the, uh, in the lens, which, which is what we call cataract. Can I ask about the different types of diabetes? And there's a difference in terms of the mm. impact on eye health between type 1 and type 2, doctor. Yeah, so both, both types uh, really you know, result with the same thing, which is elevated blood sugar. Mm-hmm. But type 1 typically happens in much, much younger age, mm-hmm. you know, even in the teenagers or, or children. So unfortunately, by, by the time they're like in their mid-20s, They've had at least 15 years of poor control. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the effect of it is very, very severe. While the type 2 usually happens later in age, 40s, 50s, uh, with obesity, with poor exercise and all of that, uh, which, which, um, you know, usually is diagnosed late. So the effect of it is not as intense and as severe as the type 1. Interesting. Okay, Dr. Amma speaking to us from Moorfields this afternoon. Happy to take your questions if you want to get in touch on 4001 on the ARN Play app or the WhatsApp if you prefer. You can be anonymous if you like. So, Doctor, can you explain some of the eye conditions that you see coming into clinic associated with diabetes can you give us some some names i guess yeah so so basically um, most of the patients and i'm very happy to say that uh, a larger and larger percentage now are coming just for a checkup 
just because they were diagnosed with diabetes. They were told by the doctor, you need to go check your eyes. They didn't understand why, <laughs> so they come to us. Mm-hmm. We explain why, we check their eyes and, um, and assure them that things are okay. And those people, we just ask them to come on a yearly basis to check their eyes, which is something really important I want to highlight to the, to the listeners is that even uh, if you are diabetic, even if you don't have any symptoms or any complaints, once a year you should check your eyes because sometimes we can pick things up before you can actually have a problem. Mm-hmm. That's, that's number one. Now, when people come in complaining of a problem from, from you know, their diabetes affecting their eyes, typically it's lack of focus, inability to see well. Uh, certain areas in the image that they're looking at are missing or very out of focus. Um, that's typically due to something we call diabetic retinopathy or, or basically effect of the diabetes on the retina of the eye. And, um, and those are all reversible conditions, but they, do, they are serious and they need to be um, you know, very, very carefully examined, diagnosed and treated. And they can be reversible and vision can come back again. Um, Doctor, we're going to go to the text line in just a couple of minutes. We are lucky enough to have stolen away Dr. Amasaf, our medical director and consultant ophthalmologist at Moorfield until half past three. So if you do have any questions for him, this is your opportunity. 4001, as I said, you can use your ARN Play app or the WhatsApp too. Um, A message asking about cataracts also being age-related and anonymous message saying that her husband has recently developed stage one background retinopathy and looking for some advice. So we're going to come to that next. Plus, what should diabetes people do to protect and uh, prevent eye conditions. We'll be discussing that next here on Dubai Eye 103.8. Helen with you. I'm live until five. Your eye health on eye. With Moorfields Eye Hospital Dubai. World leading experts in eye care. Moorfields. Driven by your vision. It is Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer. It's 23 minutes past three and we are talking eye health. Dr. Amasafa, the medical director and consultant ophthalmologist at Moorfields, is live on the line, ready to take my question, but most importantly yours, if you do have any concerns relating to diabetes in particular. Um, I wanted to ask about risk factors, Dr. Amasafa. In your years of practice, are you able to identify demographics within people who have diabetes who might be more prone to having eye problems? That's a very good question. And, and look, the, the, the number one risk factor for uh, eye problems in diabetics is poor control of the diabetes. Mm-hmm. That's really been proven over and over again in big studies that if you control the sugar from the beginning, uh, regardless of how aggressive it was in the beginning, if you control the numbers, if you make sure that your numbers are under control, then you can avoid all the side effects of diabetes, including the eye problems. So, so this is very important to, to understand and know. Now, of course, there are risk factors for developing diabetes to begin with, uh, such as you know, uh, sedentary lifestyle, not exercising, eating junk all the time, um, you know, things like that. If you're not having healthy diet and, and, uh, and putting on weight, then that is more likely for you to have diabetes and have the complications of diabetes associated with that. Dr. Amar, to going to the text line, you mentioning there about cataracts being a, a common um, eye condition right. for those who do have diabetes. And message is saying cataracts are also age-related, um, which mm-hmm. I wondered if you could outline a little bit about that in terms of clarity, because it's not just people who have diabetes that will uh, contract cataracts. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what is a cataract? Basically, we need to really understand that before we, we, we dive a bit deeper in that. So the, the, we all have a lens inside of our eyes. It's a, it's a very transparent uh, and crystal-like uh, substance or, or structure 
that uh, allows us to see and allows us to focus what we're looking at. Now, if we are lucky to live long enough, all of us will develop a cataract because with age, this lens starts to lose its clarity and its transparency, and that's what we call in, in medicine cataract. Now, people who have diabetes are more likely to have that earlier in life than, mm. uh, than others. Uh, people who are using certain medications, such as steroids, for example, for asthma or something like that, also develop cataracts earlier in life than, than none. So yes, definitely, cataract is something that we all will acquire if we're lucky to live long enough, uh, because it is age-related. But uh, if we have diabetes and we don't control the diabetes, we'll get it a lot earlier, so we can get it in the 40s or 50s as opposed to 70s and 80s. And then do you tend to advise cataract surgery, you know, replacing that cloudy lens with an artificial one? Correct. Correct. So this is luckily a curable condition where we can actually remove this cloudy lens and put it in an artificial one, which is as good and probably sometimes even better um, and gives you a really clear vision uh, back. Um, anonymous message here, doctor, saying we found out recently that my husband has developed stage one background retinopathy. Um, we're honestly petrified and looking for some advice. He doesn't seem to care um, and doesn't have much time to do anything with his health. He's 42, not very active. He eats rich yeah. food and I'm trying to cut down on that. But any other advice would be appreciated. You mentioned earlier some of the conditions can be reversed. Um, can you explain yeah. how? Yes. So, so in his mid-40s or early 40s and, and having stage 1 diabetes, that means he probably had it for about 10 years or so. And he wasn't really, as you said, doesn't really care because, because that's another dangerous thing with diabetes. Um, it's basically a number that you go to get blood, blood drawn and they tell you, oh, you have diabetes, but you're feeling okay. You're not in pain. You, know, you don't feel like anything has changed in your lifestyle. So you go like, oh, you know, nothing. I'll, I'll just carry on with, with my life. Mm-hmm. That's the danger uh, of diabetes because if you ignore it, uh, 10 years later, it starts uh, showing up in all over your body, eyes, kidneys, um, fingers, toes, all of these places can start to, to get affected. So a stage one, I don't, think, I don't want them to be petrified because it's still very, very early and can still be uh, um, controlled. Now, how, what would I advise? I would advise to change the lifestyle a little bit. Take the disease seriously. Do not ignore it. Please do not ignore diabetes. This is the, the worst thing you can do is to ignore it and, and then pay for it 10 years later. Um, so, so right now, you have to have a major lifestyle change where you get healthy, get fit, get these numbers under control. And then all of these changes that uh, are typical of a type 1 uh, uh, background diabetic retinopathy will disappear by themselves. And in terms of wider advice for people who might be listening today, maybe they have diabetes or maybe there's someone in their family um, that does and they want to do as much as they can to have healthy eyes for as long as possible. You talked there about the importance of keeping the diabetes under control. Yeah. Is there anything else that is within people's control to protect their eye health and prevent some of the conditions we've been talking about today, Doctor? Um, yes. So basically, I mean, like I said, uh, I'm, I'm, I, do not, I do repeat the same thing is, is checking their eyes is a very important mm, thing, especially absolutely. if there is a remote history of diabetes or, or other problems in the family. Check your eyes. Make sure that you, you, you see a professional that can tell you that everything is OK and, and give you the advice needed uh, to keep your eyes healthy. Um, in general, avoiding um, exposure to the sun, for example, especially we live in Dubai where there's quite a bit of sun. So please wear these sunglasses and make sure that you don't get exposure to uh, UV. Um, and eat healthy, exercise, healthy life actually results in healthy vision. 
So uh, this is something that is very important. And for the diabetes, again, I would say, please, if you are diabetic, do not ignore this disease. You can control it and avoid all of the complications, but you first have to admit that there is a problem and I need to get over this problem. Well said indeed. Dr. Amar, thank you so, so much for your time. I'm going to let you get back to your busy practice there at Moorfields. Um, <laughs> thank you, Helen. And, uh, thank we'll you for having me. soon indeed. Thank you, sir. Um, if there's any um, health issues that you would like us to address on the show, some of Dubai's most in-demand doctors, we've got them in our little black book. Please let me know. Um, we really are here for you. This is your platform. Home or away. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We love meeting inspirational people of all ages and joined in the studio now by 17-year-old Manal. Her first business was started when she was just 13. So what drives a teen towards entrepreneurship? What are her hopes for the future and advice for any other youngsters listening out there who've got aspirations? Manal, we should probably start by asking how you found yourself sitting in the chair in the studio. It feels very powerful. Good. It's very lucky you. to have that opportunity. Thanks well, for having me. Don't say lucky because you made this happen. You're the one that sent a message, kind of sending a pitch to us saying, hi, this is who I am. This is what I do. would love to come on the show. And I was like, that, that takes gumption and I like it. So thank, thank you. Well, thank you. I think it's fantastic. I think I love a go-getting attitude of all ages. And I think that's a, a really brave, bold thing to do. And I think it pays off in all aspects of life, not just coming on Dubai Eye, but obviously starting businesses as well. Let's talk business. Um, First of all, where are you Where are you from? Where are you studying? So I'm from Pakistan and I've been in Dubai my whole life and I study at Emirates International School, Jumeirah. I'm going to find out a little bit about how you're balancing schoolwork and all your businesses, but <laughs> tell us then about your first steps into entrepreneurship four years ago. So I started my very first business, as you said, at the age of 13 and that was kind of my very first business venture and I sold homemade slime. <laughs> this is my kid's dream, by the way. It was my dream too, and I just made it happen. Honestly, at that time, it was the type of thing that everyone was obsessed with, slime, and just found a recipe online, started making them, and I made an Instagram for myself, and that's where I posted all the different slimes, and obviously everyone was crazy about it then, so it was kind of a very new idea that someone my age was selling the slime because usually we'd buy it from the stores. Yeah, but also how much more fun is it to buy from a kid who understands what, what other kids want? It was so fun, even just making them. What was popular? Honestly, the one slime which was really popular was the fluffy slime. Oh, I need to get this recipe. Okay. So that was back when you were 13. And then a few years ago, 2020, yeah. just, you know, just in the middle of a pandemic, let's start a business. Tell us about that, Manal. So obviously the pandemic, everyone was stuck at home and it was right right before the lockdown phase. And that's when I had the idea of, you know, I had so much free time because I was on online school and I was like, let's take this as an opportunity and start a business out of this. And that's where I identified my niche market, which was mainly teenagers and young adults. And I started an e-commerce store and I sold premium LED lights and lamps. This is unexpected. Why did you identify this as a market you wanted to get involved in and, and identify that there was a market here for it? I just felt like it was a really unique selling point. And when I contacted suppliers and found the product, I literally just fell in love with it. It was a lamp which you would plug in and it would 
you know, switch off the lights and it would create a starry night sky effect and it bloomed like all over your room ceiling. And I sold one of them, which was obviously the one which plugged in. And then as I gained more attention and more people were interested in it, I moved to the second product, which was the smart LED version. So it was so cool. It was connected to an app by Bluetooth and you could like create your own settings and control the brightness and stuff. So it was an upgrade of the first product, basically. You went viral on TikTok with this. Yes. How did that go? Did it actually make a difference to your sales? Could you correlate? Honestly, I feel like it definitely made a difference because I also used a lot of influencers, not just in Dubai, but across the Middle East and other Emirates to promote my products. But I feel like there's just a different sense of attention you get to your business when you organically grow. Mm -hmm. So I posted, obviously, it's not an overnight thing, so I had to do make many TikToks, basically, to promote my products. But then it's really, sometimes it is just about that luck that you would wake up and with a bunch of views. So that oh, happened nice. to me. And it was around, I think, 30,000 or 40,000 views. And it was just on one video. And that not only did it increase my brand awareness and like make more followers, but my engagement on my website was really high. And alongside this, I was also doing influencer marketing and my own paid advertisements. And together, it all just really did increase my sales. I feel like marketing definitely plays a heavy role when it comes to your sales. And so does organic growth. I'm looking at you going, how are you 17 years old, Manal? Honestly, now you have started a company more recently, which is exactly tapping into what you're talking about there in terms of being a digital agency, looking at marketing. Um, why do you feel like this is something you are interested in and looking to grow? Honestly, it all just started from my dad. He really pushed me to take the initiative to find what my passion was, and that was business. And he also is an entrepreneur in Dubai, and he has his own company of a a consulting and tax firm. And he was just always so keen on me to bringing on to bringing me on these business seminars, which he attends. Mm -hmm. And I also did a digital marketing course and internships around Dubai, not just to find my interest, but also obviously help me with my university applications. And that's where I found that marketing is just the right thing for me. I found that it was not only a good way to make money, but also something which seemed interesting. Like, it's cool, you get paid to, you know, make TikTok videos and <laughs> not just that, but help other people grow. And when I did my business, I feel like those two, I gained lots of experience by doing it firsthand because mm -hmm. it was hands-on-hand -hand experience. Mm -hmm. And that's where just my overall interest started from entrepreneurship and marketing as a whole. It's really interesting that there's an entrepreneurial spirit in the family because if you've grown up watching somebody who has struck out on their own and that's that's a norm for you, then, you know, why why would you not think that that's possible for you? I think that's really, really interesting. Obviously, your family's very supportive. Yeah. How do you find the time? You're in senior year of school. You talked about university applications there. Mm -hmm. How are you balancing it all, Manal? Honestly, not going to lie, it's just one of those <laughs> things where it's not a linear experience. Like one day I feel like I need to, you know, post TikTok videos and manage the orders, but I have an exam the next day. And obviously with senior year, it's also about the future. So we'll start planning ahead early. But I just feel like time management is just one essential thing which I've developed over the years. And I know my priorities. And at the end of the day, I have to get not just stuff done for my business, but also school is really important. Mm -hmm. I feel like my body is just naturally trained now to find my time of the day to complete the tasks which I have. And it's something which just comes if you have the interest towards something and you want to take action towards it's it. It's a passion. It, just, yeah. it doesn't feel like a chore. You're doing something that you enjoy and you're obviously seeing the results from it. So what's next then? University, business school? Yes. So obviously I want to continue my studies and focus on my business outside of school. And I recently launched a digital marketing agency and we specialize in digital marketing services to help your business grow and use those 
channels to increase your sales. So it goes under the name of Figzo Media. And me and my dad both work on it. And over there, you know, I just coach you and help you try to grow your business. And I'm going to continue this with school and university. I love it because, you know, when we're thinking about selling to teens and young people, who better to help a company understand that need than a 17-year-old who I think you're amazing. I really do. For anyone that wants to reach out to you, whether it is, and I have to say, I have have seen the videos of your LED lights and they are an absolute thing of beauty, or indeed the digital agency. What's the best way of reaching out to you, Manel? So you can reach us on Instagram. Uh, It goes under the name, the username is Vigzomedia or our website, which is Vigzomedia.com. 17 years old. You do not want to know what I was doing at 17. Let's just say it wasn't starting, not one, not two, but three businesses. Manel, incredible to meet you. Thank you so much for coming in. And all the rest of the future, I can see by the look in your eye. This isn't the last time you're going to... Next time, business breakfast, I bet you. Yeah. You're a star. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. It is all about your animals on the show this afternoon. And joining us live in the hot seat is Dr. Sergio De Silva from Intervet. He's got 30 years of experience, specialises in avian pets, but also small and exotic animals, which I'm very curious about, Doctor. How are you? Very good. I'm good. Now, you are from Brazil, so I think your definition of exotic is probably very different to mine, which was, I mean, a hamster. (laughs) But in Dubai, what comes under that exotic category? Uh, the most common to come with us, uh, rabbits, some, but they have some special animals, like, for example, falcons still, uh, some wildlife, and some big cats. Big cats? Yes. They're coming to the clinic? Yes. What, what pets do you have at home? Uh, I have three dogs and the cat. Okay, now, so, for uh, anyone who hasn't listened to Pets and Vets before, I love the names. <laughs> so if you are sending a message in to 4001, please tell me what your pet's called. I'm not so bothered about your name, um, but I'd love to know what your what your animals are called. Pets. I find it really interesting. So what are your pets called, Doctor? Uh, all my pet's name was given by my son, so it's kind of funny name. So Lily, Lulu, Lele, and Dede. <laughs> Oh, cute. <laughs> We've got a lot of messages to get through, Doctor. But before we go to the text line, this is a bit of a topical one, to be honest. Fireworks. Okay. We had Diwali, of course, and then coming up this weekend. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Um, I'm not sure what the fireworks situation is going to be for, for Bonfire Night. But it's no secret that a lot of animals find it very distressing. And I wondered if there's anything that we can do in advance of occasions where we know there's going to be fireworks to best prepare our animals and de-stress them a bit before, during and after. Okay, so... Uh, why why dogs and cats are so stressful? Because they are nocturnal animals. So basically, they live on the night more than during the day. So her instinct is more active during the night. So what we can do to, for example, block the to the lights that come from outside, reduce the noise. Mm-hmm. So we are lucky, like Dubai, most of the the windows are double windows. So at least close the windows, keep them inside. So it's very common, especially in Marina, we have some accidents. So cats can jump from the from the, the, the high floor, and I have received some, some animals after this, especially well, cats. Really? Well, it's interesting because um, an article just came out reporting that um, the Kennel Club has said that they believe Bonfire Night and, and other occasions where there's fireworks um, are accompanied by a 33% surge in the number of animals that go missing. So animals just being very frightened and distressed by that. So 
as you're saying, in terms of muffling the noise as much as possible, but making sure that doors, balconies, everything closed so they haven't got an escape route. What about, and I I say this as a, a, a parent of children as well as pets, what about white noise or other sources of noise to offset the fireworks? Yes, this is another technique. So, for example, try to put him inside. Um, if you can, if they, they stay inside a place that has a lot of carpets and some, uh, I can say, sofa, things mm-hmm. that absorb noise. Mm-hmm. And also some dogs want to stay close to people. So it's, it's, it's very nice to give this static, uh, say, stay, stay closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some product that you can use to reduce the stress as well. I'm not saying something to make him like a, a bit uh, dizzy, no. But there's some product that you can use, especially some some uh, uh, I can say perfumes. Yeah, like plug-in scents and things yes, like that. Yes, scents and some perfumes can reduce the stress as well. They feel more comfortable. Okay, lock the doors, and in in my, in my opinion, the most important is try to you don't be stressed because I can see many owners they get stressed before the fireworks, so they become you know more uh, active mm-hmm. and the animal feels the, the the place. Remember, he he feels that he belongs to your pack, mm-hmm. and if the leader of the pack is in panic, he will be in panic also. So this is the best time for you to relax, put a nice song, nice music. There's some songs for dogs and pets but on you, YouTube. YouTube's got loads, and actually the yeah. Kennel Club has just released a Spotify playlist that's called Firework Pet Training that can help them get used to those noises ahead of time, and then as you say, some other kind of calming calming tracks uh, during that. Night. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. It's all about your animals this afternoon. Joining us live in the studio is Dr. Sergio De Silva from Intervet. He's taking my questions, but honestly, most importantly, yours. So if you do have any worries about what's happening with your animal, this is your opportunity to get some advice, maybe an action plan, hopefully some reassurances, and also be in a chance with winning a goodie hamper, not just a goodie bag, from Purina ProPlan. Um, a message here from uh, Dinesh saying, we're fostering a German Shepherd mix pup around seven months old. Got her from a family that found her wandering around, has a microchip, but no owner data on her. We're taking care of her until we find a nice home. Eden, that's her name, refuses to sit home alone, barks and tears things, wondering if these are abandonment issues, otherwise quite normal, and also barking at cats on the road. Any thoughts? What comes to mind there, Dr. Sergio? Uh, it's, it's always good to, first of all, to have a check in the vet. And behavior can be, you know, changed because he, he moves from one place to another place. Mm-hmm. It basically is abandoned or whatever. Uh, so animals, when they, they be lost or get lost from his own pack, they feel distress. And so this can cause a lot of extra problems. So the best way is bring to the clinic, to any, any clinic, in veterinary clinic, to have a proper approach and to give some, some, some good advice. I think some, some behaviour issues are completely normal. I think most puppies go yeah. through a bit of a destructive chewing phase. I remember... I don't say this lightly, hating our dog for a couple of months and coming home and it wasn't a case of <laughs> of if something is going to be destroyed. It's like, what is going to be destroyed? Is it going to be cushions or corners of co- you know, coffee table corners or shoes? It was a bad day or it was my Kindle. But sometimes these, these behaviours can, as you say, be an indication of sometimes psychological issues sounds very serious. But, you know, yeah. as you say, abandonment issues and that's where behaviours can, can really help. But make sure that medical side is, is yeah, sorted first. It's, it's the best um, talking about diet here, messages in, can you ask the doctor if a raw diet is good for bulldogs? And if so, how to do it? I'm doing some research, but it's all over the place. This is this is the problem with the internet. <laughs> yeah. What's your take? I don't like raw food. 
and this is my not only professional opinion, I believe we evolved a lot in, in, in pet food, especially in the pet food industry, to, to, to give people freedom to give the pet food on the right quantity of ingredients and stuff like that. And now we want to go back to, to the past. And, and, and for that, we can have some digestive problem, especially for bulldogs. Bulldogs in genetics, when you talk about the DNA, those guys... In the, in, the, in, the, in the last, I can say the last 50 years, they wasn't breed too much. Mm -hmm. So this week pushed together all this, this allergic stuff and, you know, bad, bad stuff. I think we sometimes forget as, about how much research is done actually behind the scenes to make sure that, yeah. you know, foods, whether it is, you know, breed specific or our dogs on a, on a renal diet, for example, that there's so much science behind this that yes. it's, it's sometimes it's just not worth taking the risk I don't think yeah. I think most vets would agree with you on that um, Nikki's saying Dr. Sergio knows the names of all of my parrots <laughs> would love to thank him for all the care and expertise in the avian field we are blessed to have him as Dr. Featherman in the UAE <laughs> thank you Nikki thanks a lot thanks a <laughs> so you are um, able to help with any bird related questions as well this afternoon yes Penny's been in touch doctor saying I've tried everything to resolve my male cat spraying in the house he's called Frog, brilliant name. He's seven years old, is neutered and vet checked. We use Fellaway Calming and try and give him lots of TLC. He's got his own litter tray and lots of free access in and out. It's so hard to cope with. It's one of the things that just, when you are stressed about your pet, whether it is their behavior or something, something like this, it does impact family life. You know, if you're worried about something happening or smells or you're anticipating it, I, Penny, I, I completely understand the frustration here. But what, what could Penny do in order to try and deal with this that she hasn't tried already, Doctor? I have, I have a few cases about the same story. So, and we, I find out that the first step for, for, the, for the, the pet owners has to be uh, check the testosterone levels. So in some case, I'm not saying that this is the case, uh, we have uh, cancer, adrenal cancer could be one of the reasons. So in that case, the best way is go to any vet, any veterinary clinic, take the sample and send for testosterone test. So this is the first, because as she try everything, something has, you know, there's something hiding that we, we wasn't discovered until now. Yeah, Penny, let us know if it's a changed behavior, if he has been toileting um, for fine in the past, if this is something new. I don't, in, the, in that case, specifically this case, I don't think so, okay. because she, as she says, she tried everything. Okay. So. Um, what about changing number of litter boxes, changing the actual litter, things like that? Could help. But we need to find the, the, the cause, the, the proper cause. So the most important for me is check it out. Okay. So in, in my opinion, this could be a testosterone levels. So in adrenal cancer can be 10 to 15 times more than the normal levels for, for the cats that they have. You know, so testosterone, yeah. blood check, even if it's just to rule that out and then can start looking down but, at the But revenues. one specific test is testosterone test okay. for this. Brilliant. Thank you for that, Penny. All the very best. Uh, Maria saying, is it possible for a mum cat to give birth to kittens with different looks? If the me if the breed is mixed, so father is Persian, mum is Himalayan. Three kittens could look Himalayan, and two could look Persian. Is that possible? Yes. Oh, that was a short answer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is it's possible. very simple, but yes, it's possible. Uh, we've had a message here on the text line for you. We've had a number of lot. You're getting lots of love on the text line today, by the way. Um, message here saying Dr. Sergio is the best and kindest doctor in Dubai Thank you. Well, saying I found a tick on my cat's ear and after a week um, he was severely yellow skin is now white um, is a liver problem related to the tick bite and when will he get his colour back it could be 
and we need to check it out for some disease, specific disease. Uh, we have some blood parasite that they destroy based the, the red blood cells, and that's why the liver is it's overloaded with iron, basically okay. like that. So the color of the animal is, is yellow after that. So we need to check it out. Again, blood test is most important. In that case, a uh, normal CBC can show and, and show that it's the, the indicates some, some disease, but it's a common disease in Dubai is ehrlichiosis in cats. So again, blood test, one specific blood test uh, for blood parasite. And the treatment is quite simple, but it have to be done as fast as possible because this can can make a problem. Okay. Dr. Sergio De Silva with us this afternoon. Uh, it's afternoons with me, Helen Farmer, Pets and Vets. Your chance to get your questions answered live on the show. So free advice. Doesn't get much better than that. Um, actually, it does, because you could also be winning a fantastic prize from Bruna Proplan just by getting in touch. Sonia has um, messaged us saying, we adopted a French bulldog called Val. Oh, my goodness. What an amazing name. Val has terrible allergies. Chews feet, scratches ears and armpits. We thought it was a grass allergy, so kept away from grass, but it's made little or no difference. We're now trying her on a fish-only diet, as we think it could be a food allergy. We also give her antihistamines, but they don't always work. Help. And then about five exclamation marks. Poor Val. Okay. okay. Uh, poor Val. Uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, French bulldog, that's what I was talking before, they are super inbreed, so they can have allergy to multiple sources. And the disease is not coming only from one place or one, or I can say grass or something that could be for a thousand things. And by the way, the combination of this allergy process can damage. And just a reminder, remember that the skin, just to recover from the first process takes 120 days so don't change your dermatologist you've got a cycle that you need to work through you need to 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 give some at least some time okay patience 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 and get back to us in 120 days okay poor val um jasmine saying hi both we found a little tortoise in our main road a couple of hours ago oh it's good timing we've brought it inside for safety and have posted on our community facebook and whatsapp groups to try and find the owners but what do we do in the meantime what environment does it need and what should we feed it? I don't know. How, if, I love to say it. I don't, know, I don't know if you know how to sex a tortoise, um, but it is possible. We have got an exotics expert in the studio this afternoon. What does Jasmine need to know about this little new friend they found? Um, uh, of course, if she can bring to me, I give a, I can say, a free consultation for her. Just oh, come Jasmine, to me. Jasmine, there you go. <laughs> so uh, we check it out if she is dehydrated. Yes, tortoise can be dehydrated. Uh, reptiles can be dehydrated in general. So offer her water and some vegetables. Uh, and after that, pay attention to her stools. And she has some diarrhea or something like that. Just bring as, as fast as possible to us. And, and they can be dehydrated. People don't, don't feel that reptiles can be dehydrated, but this is extremely important water in that case. Okay. Oh, Jasmine, you might you might have a new uh, foster fail there. Um, but yes, I will very happily connect you with Dr. Sergio for that free consultation. That's very generous. Uh, Constantine is saying, what does Dr. Sergio think about doggy DNA tests? Useful or accurate? We have a mixed breed and curious to find out. I think motivations for doing doggy DNA tests really vary. Sometimes, as you mentioned, some specific breeds have specific health issues associated with them. So it can be quite useful to have a bit of a, a history as such, providing they are accurate. What's your take on them? Them, doctor 
Uh, I, I feel that is important. Nowadays, it's it's good to, to, to know, for example, for heart failure. I have a case, unfortunately, for one of my clients who lost two, two dogs in less than a year oh, for heart yes. failure. For some breed that we know that it's, you know, uh, has this kind of problem. So, uh, so DNA is important in that case to prevent some disease. But most most people use for curiosity, just mm -hmm. to know where they come from and that. But helps a lot in allergy process. So, because if you know that this come from the, this this part of the world, we can we can uh, work on it much much easier. Dr. Sergio, thank you so much for your time today. I know you're very busy at Intervet and I'm really keen to come and visit you because I've heard that you've got some lovely animals that you can have a little play and uh, interact with yes. and some some more exotic animals as well. Um, if you do want Dr. Sergio's details, drop me a little line on 4001 as you have heard by numerous messages coming in. Um, how kind he is, I can attest to that as well, but also expert when it comes to avian um, exotics as well um, and a message here which we're going to have to save for next time uh, Matthias from Brazil saying Dr. Sergio is an excellent vet and he takes very good care of our cat Zek um, he wants to know about feline acne we will save that for another day thank you Dr. Sergio really do appreciate your time thank you Helen thank and, you everyone uh, we'll have you back in the studio very very soon you've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast to enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.